Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fellow time travellers, you lovely people, fellow travellers, blithe spirits, it's great to have you with me as we travel through space and time. Big thanks, as always, to everyone who has joined my patreon.com site. It's the financial support that comes via that patreon.com presence that lets Paul and I maintain the wheels on the bus, makes all of it, all the podcast series possible. So for all of those who are there, giving, giving that support, thank you. Thank you, thank you. If you're not a Patreon member yet, and you'd like to be, and I suggest it's high time you join, for the good of your soul, go to patreon.com, find me by name, pay a small subscription fee, uh, and you can pay by the month, or you can pay by the year. It's cheaper by the dozen, uh, but either way, it's all fine by me. Just sign up. Uh, and as well as helping to uh, keep the wheels in the bus and support the podcast, you get access, early access to new material and there's other stuff. A question and answer session that we do every week. There's competitions. Also, the, the community that, that, that forms under that umbrella, you're all in touch with each other. And so there's a family out there of, of history-minded, curious-minded, question-asking people that you're more than welcome to join. Okay. It's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next step in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The day of days. The leader of the National Socialists walks into President Hindenburg's office and leaves as Chancellor of the whole country. Bitter regret, resentment and economic misery are curdling in the gut of Germany and Germans. The new leader has a gift for oratory and a taste for violence, and like a lightning rod, he channels the people's grievances. By August 1934, he is absolute ruler of Germany, the most significant moment of the 20th century. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In the last episode, it was 1924 when two heroic mountaineers who had both faced the horrors of the First World War were reaching for the stars. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul. Hello, fellow time travellers. Yes, last week's episode was about George Mallory and Andrew Irvin and took us to a place that I've described as the unblemished heart of adventure. 
This week it's 1933 and dark storm clouds are once again gathering over Europe as a charismatic leader makes his final ascent to ultimate power. We're in the president of Germany's office as Adolf Hitler enters. Hi Paul, yes, very unusually for you and me, this is after lunch. We never do this, but here we are. It's um, in Stirling in Scotland in the United Kingdom of Great Britain. On my computer screen it says just after five to one, very late in the day. Uh, where are we this week? It's um, Well, we're in Germany uh, and we are considering the moment when one Adolf Hitler became Chancellor. Adolf Hitler, it's one of those names, isn't it? It's just synonymous with sin and evil and wickedness. That's how, that's how everyone feels when they read or hear that name. I can't imagine that there's many little children born in Germany or anywhere else who are christened Adolf because, you know, the name has just become almost damned. An extraordinarily frightening bogeyman from the past. I do wonder, actually, for you and me, I'm sure, and lots of people listening to this, I'm sure, it's an instantly, instantly we understand the name, but I suppose there has to come a time when generations are coming up that the name doesn't mean much to them. Because I keep reading in things that, you know, that kids, kids today don't know who Winston Churchill was. So if they don't know who Winston Churchill was, I'd have thought there was a very strong possibility that names like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Joseph Stalin, you know, presumably there, there comes a time, I suppose, when they drift away and they become filed along with people like Xerxes and other, you know, like dictators from the past. But uh, we're in Germany, but it's 1933. In this moment, Adolf Hitler has been summoned to the office of the elderly and ailing German president, the head of state. And that is Paul Ludwig Hans Anton von Beneckendorf und von Hindenburg. President Hindenburg. He greets uh, the much younger man, Adolf Hitler, in his office. It's noon. It's 12 o'clock midday on January the 30th, 1933. And according to those that, that witnessed the events unfold, Hindenburg was reluctant very reluctant to hand the reins of government to make Chancellor this one Adolf Hitler, who Hindenburg regarded as, quote, an uppity pleb, or whatever the German translation of uppity pleb is. But he he was, you know, he, he had a very contemptuous, disdainful impression of Adolf Hitler in 1933 and seemingly barely, he barely deigned to look Hitler in the eye for the duration of the meeting. Let's say it was a cool reception between two men who did not see eye to eye, literally and metaphorically, as recently as the 26th of of that month. So just, just four days previously, Hindenburg had been with close friends And he had said to them, words to the effect, Gentlemen, I hope you don't think that I can call this Austrian Corporal Chancellor. But nonetheless, nonetheless, by the end of that meeting, on the 30th of January 1933, Hitler was Chancellor. Prime Minister, 
head of the government. And you might might get argument on this point, but I would say there'd be grounds for saying it was the most significant moment of the 20th century. It's like a hinge. You know, it's like it was like the axis of the world moved. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was one of, it was the moment, I would say. No, nothing was of greater significance than, than Adolf Hitler coming into power in Germany in 1933. President Hindenburg, you'll have seen pictures of him. He's the classic sort of Teutonic German you know, leader, soldier, warrior. He was, he had been, he was Germany's most decorated marshal of World War One. It really made his name and, and, and earned his spurs in World War One, although he'd been he'd been in the armed forces for longer than that. And you'd say that he was an old fashioned embodiment of German decency and honour. You know, the upright man, you know, broad chested not to be messed with, to be trusted, not to be doubted. Everything about that kind of old-fashioned man of his word. However, in 1933, he was 85 years old. And he was in failing health. And in every way that mattered, physically and politically, he was on the way out. He'd had his day. Come what may, he was, you know, he was moving gently towards the door marked exit. Adolf Hitler, by contrast, was 34 in January 1933, and he was a politician. He was a politician on the make, and he was on the rise. So, you know, Hindenburg's going over the hill into history reluctantly, and Hitler's coming in via the entrance, just appearing on the stage, really. Adolf Hitler had the, you know, had the nous, had the sense to play the game with Hindenburg on the day, but privately he had said to his friends that he that he regarded Hindenburg as an old ruin, quote unquote. But as I say again, Hitler affected the 20th century more than any other single human being. I mean, other people acted in reaction to him, but as an active player. Who who had a had a bigger impact on the twentieth century than than young Adolf, and because of that, you know, because of how much he matters to the story of the world, or, or certainly to the story of the twentieth century and everything that's happened subsequently, you have to wonder how did he happen? How, how did a man like Adolf Hitler happen? And where and from what exactly did he rise? What was the seedbed from which Adolf Hitler grew? Where was his cradling? How did he occur? It's of fundamental importance to pay attention to where historical figures like Adolf Hitler come from. Because ultimately, there is only one person. And when one person changes the world forever, you really do have to pay them close attention. I mean, this is without before you get into whether you hate them or love them or whatever, but you've got to wonder, what's the sequence of events that enables or causes one, one man to emerge and to change the world, to move the world on its axis. As they say, it's not rocket science. At least some of it's not rocket science. Among the fundamental answers to that question is is the fact that he gave voice. He articulated most or, or all of the resentment, the regret, the simmering anger that so many German people felt in the aftermath of World War One. World War One came to an end in 1918, and in 1919, 
Treaty of Versailles was put together. And and Germany, by the Treaty of Versailles, Germany, with an arm up its back, had been forced to accept sole responsibility for the outbreak of the hostilities in 1914. They were made to say it was all our fault, which is silly. It's like when there's two cars crash. They're both there, otherwise the impact can't occur. So no matter what, there was some responsibility borne by other players. But by the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany accepted that if, if it hadn't been for them, none of it would have happened. With the outbreak of peace, so to speak, Germany was being governed by, directed by the Weimar Republic. And the Weimar Republic was named for the town where the paperwork was drawn up and completed. Uh, so that all happened in the town of Weimar. So hence, Weimar Republic. And it was a republic. It was a democratic republic, so-called. But to all of those German people who honoured in their hearts and remembered Germany's imperial past, Germany had been an empire under the Kaisers, which is, comes from the same root as Caesar. The Weimar Republic, it was a nod at most really to democracy, but it was an affront to many, many German people. Some people were okay with it. You know, some people thought young young progressive types, and there are always young progressive types, thought the Weimar Republic was the way to go. And it, and it, it, it came with a certain kind of, I don't know, not glamour, I suppose. You know, there was an attraction to it for some. And it was, it was self-consciously, knowingly progressive, a, a bit like the self-consciously progressive movement that's out there in, in our day. But to be honest, to be realistic, it was any government that had come in after World War One was under the crushing weight of, of economic reality. Europe had been destroyed by four years of cannibalistic war. Europe had partially consumed itself and the nature and reach and scale of the war meant that depression, economic depression, was inevitable. So it, it wouldn't have mattered what style of authority was there in Germany. There was going to be hard times ahead for a country broken by war in the way that Germany had been. The Allies, you know, France, Britain, and America... And, allowed themselves to indulge a dangerous fantasy, which was that Germany, by the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, was hobbled, gelded, neutered, that it would, forevermore. You know, that Germany would never rise again. It would, be, it would be a placid absence from the world stage forevermore. And that was silly. More silliness. It was a bit like, I, I always think about that, that kind of indulging that notion of Germany, a bit like a, a child it shutting its eyes, going la 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 la, rather than confront whatever it is in the room that scares him or her. It's there, you know it's there. Germany was there. And the innate nature of Germany, where it sits in Europe, its history, it was always going to re-emerge as an industrial powerhouse. Or or it, at the very least, you'd have to have conceded that it had always the potential to re-emerge as an industrial and economic powerhouse. It just was. And as the generations moved on, anyone with any sense ought to have predicted that 
that, that Germany would kindle again the fires of, of growth and economic growth and, and so on and so on. But to deny that reality, that inevitability, was a fundamental mistake in the post-war psychology of Allied Europe. You know, pretending that Germany was gone. You know, so we're considering what it was that, that shaped the context of Adolf Hitler and National Socialism and and the rise of the Nazi Party and all of the rest of it. And there are, there are lots of things to consider spread over you know decades. So, so long before the First World War, in 1882, we've mentioned him before, Friedrich Nietzsche, in a piece called Gay Science, had noted that God was dead, that we had killed God, that modern civilization had done away with God. And he noted that that absence left a vacuum, and nature abhors a vacuum, as we know. And as far as Nietzsche was concerned, a, a people, peoples denied God, denied spirituality. It, they don't, as the secularists and maybe the atheists would have it, the people don't then believe in nothing. They believe in anything. That's the great danger. Uh, you know, the, the thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine. People... Not all people, but probably possibly most people, they they want to believe something. They want to have meaning in their lives. They want to sense or 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 actually be part of something bigger than they are. And if it's not a belief in a transcendental entity and out of reach in another realm entirely God, then they'll believe in something in the here and now something that's the work of humankind and thereby subject to all of the frailties of humankind. And, well, you know, it goes without saying really, but new ideologies uh, sparked into existence in that godless uh, world. Zombie ideology, we'd say, that were pulled into the vacuum, pulled into the space left vacant. So you've got people... Peoples all over, in Germany and elsewhere, denied the moral compass upon which they and their ancestors relied for forever. But, but people still need to navigate by something. They need, they need coordinates. They need, consciously or subconsciously, they want their coordinates. They want to know where they are in relation to everything else. And so, without religion... There's an inevitability about people looking for something else to tell them how to be, where to go, what to think, how to behave. And so in, in, in that, all in that mix, in that void, was Marxist communism. Fascism was there as a, as a mindset, as an ideology. Nationalism. Nationalism's always there. Blood and soil nationalism. People that want to champion the superiority of their country over everybody else's. And they declare that they belong to it, that they grew from it like... You know, like an apple tree grows in its soil. They want to believe that, that, that they are made of the country in which they were born. And also, crucially in that mix was Adolf Hitler. You know, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And he was there. He was Austrian by birth. Hindenburg thought him a chancer. He thought he was just a, you know, a guy out to get whatever he could get. Um, and maybe he was. There was certainly that aspect to him. Because... In, in most of the ways that mattered, in terms of a of a of an old patrician 
elder statesmen like Hindenburg. Adolf Hitler had come from nowhere, or, the, or, or a context that Hindenburg would think of as nowhere. People that know a little bit about Adolf will know that he had he was an inspiring artist, a watercolorist. He had attempted, he had applied for uh, a place at the Vienna Academy to study art. How different the world might have been. You consider it. Imagine if he just got in, and all of his resentments and frustrations had been ameliorated or massaged away enough if he had just had his easel and his canvas and his box of watercolours. It's an interesting sliding door, isn't it? You know, if that if the if the door of the academy had opened to him rather than slamming in his face, uh, where might the world be now? So that didn't work out for him. He's not going to be an artist. He's very annoyed. He wasn't a very good artist. I mean, he, you know, he could he could draw a bit and paint a bit, but you know, judging by the things that he left behind, you know, he wasn't he wasn't anything special. So, you know, arguably the Vienna Academy made the right decision. However, between uh, 1904 and 1913, it's known that he was living really living on his wits, living by his wits in Vienna. He stayed in the city, and he just did. He picked up whatever work he could to get by. He sold his art as postcards, you know, a few cents a time. And he picked up casual work, various things, just as it, so many people in that post-war Germany, you know, in the, in the, in the teens and twenties, he was just picking up work. Uh, he, apparently he was a carpet beater for a while, you know, beating the dust out of people's rugs and again for pennies. But then World War One comes along and, uh, well, he's, he volunteered. A lot of young men, for all sorts of reasons, wanted in among the adventure, in inverted commas, that the, the, the Great War promised to be. So he, he volunteered for and joined the Bavarian Regiment. Uh, and during the course of the, the fighting, he rose to the rank of corporal, which isn't very high, but, you know, he got somewhere. However, he was recommended for the Iron Cross, which is the which is the German Victoria Cross? It's the you know it's the mark of valor. So you know, let's imagine he was a good soldier, brave, not backward at coming forward into the you know into fight. And then after the war, well, t- to all intents and purposes, really, he was a he was a kind of a government spy, but he was he was he was employed. He was paid by the government, by the Weimar Republic. And he would tip them off about the rise of and the behaviour of political parties, you know, kind of fringe elements and sort of revolutionary types. Well, Hitler would snitch about the existence of them and he would keep the, keep the government up to date on what other people otherwise politically minded were up to. And then, obviously, he's moving in that water so he's aware of everything that's going on and he knows who what the groups are. And he, he, In 1920, he joins one and he manages to have it renamed. So from 1920 onwards, he is a leading light in what he calls the National Socialist German Workers' Party. So it kind of, it ticks a lot of box. You know, it's got the word national in it and it's got the word socialist in it. So it's appealing to a, a broad church. Uh, workers, uh, you know, so he's championing, notionally championing the working man. And as we know, 
as we know, and you cannot take it away from him, Adolf Hitler was amongst the most effective orators, speech makers of all time. He was able to, for his own ends, but he could package his own resentments and his hatreds and his anger and his own explanations for everything that was wrong in Germany and everything that was wrong in the world. And he, he could he could bundle it all together into something that appealed to his audience, an audience that grew. He could like plant earworms in people's heads. He could give them thoughts that stayed with them and niggled away and took root. Obviously, he was particularly appealing to those with a similar view to his own, but there was no shortage of people like that in post-First World War Germany. A lot of people bitter at what had happened. Always, always, always there was this resentment about those who had signed the Treaty of Versailles. And more than anything else, really, had accepted all the blame and all the guilt for World War I. And Adolf Hitler was able to get those people and, and bring them to him. He gradually became their demagogue. So he got more and more confident as time went on. And in 1923, he attempted with his collaborators to overthrow the government of Bavaria. Germany, there were individual identities within the greater within the greater Germany. And so he was he went after overthrowing the, the administration within Bavaria. It failed. It was crushed. Sixteen of his so-called stormtroopers were killed, cut down, mown down by machine guns. Hitler and his accomplice close accomplice, Hermann Göring, there's another name that everyone's heard. They were both wounded. They were both hurt by bullets and all the rest and jailed. And in jail, he dictated Mein Kampf, his autobiography. Mein Kampf is German for my struggle. And he dictated it to Rudolf Hess, who's another of his allies. You know, you picture him lying on his bunk, <laughs> pontificating. And Rudolf Hess, you know, take, taking notes. So that's where Mein Kampf comes from. He spent less than a year in jail, they all did. And as soon as he got out, he's back, back to his old ways, back on the campaign trail. And he's still harping on the same thing, which is to say the shame. He's, he's stoking those who feel the shame inflicted on Germany by the signatories of the Treaty of Versailles. And in 1932... He challenged Hindenburg for the presidency in an election. He stood like a you know a presidential candidate against Hindenburg, the incumbent, and he lost. He was not elected president, but it was an election in the July of of 1932, and the results showed that his party, his National Socialist German Workers' Party, was the biggest single party in the Reichstag, which is the German Parliament. He didn't have an overall majority, but they were the biggest single block, which was, that was quite something. When I mean, you think about where he came from and, the, and and a lot of what he was up against, it was quite, a, it was quite the achievement. But, and now he's got momentum and he's able to keep the momentum going. And so by 1933, there's, there's all these machinations going on. Everyone else apart from Hitler is trying to work out how best to handle Hitler because he can no longer be dismissed as, as a non-entity. Not really. I mean, Hindenburg might have dismissed him as that Austrian corporal and, you know, an, an uppity pleb and so on and so on. But the political reality was that he had gathered to himself political clout. And there were lots of people trying to 
suggest the best way to handle the situation. And so, in 1933, Hindenburg was persuaded to offer the role of Chancellor to Adolf Hitler. And the key player in that campaign on Hitler's behalf, really, or or that worked to Hitler's advantage, was a a conservative um, previous incumbent of the role of German Chancellor, a man called Franz von Papen, who reasoned and persuaded Hindenburg that when you took everything else into consideration, it was better to have Hitler inside the tent pissing out, as it were, than outside the tent pissing in. Let's get him in and make him one of us. And how often have you heard that as an idea? You know, that's, that is so often the way that these organisms they try to something that's outside. They try to just, you know, it's like a like a like a. I don't know, like a mitochondria or a paracetium. It's like a little cell that just absorbs something outside and tries to take it in and digest it. But in any event, Hitler is now Chancellor. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. And he gives his first address to the German people in February of 1933. And it's an all-encompassing speech that makes him the lightning rod for every grievance in the book. Amongst other things, he says... The warning signs of this approaching disintegration are all about us. In a single gigantic offensive of willpower and violence, the communist method of madness is attempting to poison and disrupt the people, the Volk, which is shaken and uprooted in its innermost core. Peasants, workers and bourgeoisie must all join together to provide the building blocks for a new Reich, a new empire. The government still therefore regard it as its first and foremost duty to re-establish Volksgemeinschaft, which is the unity of spirit and will of our Volk. It will preserve and defend the foundations upon which the power of our nation rests. It will extend its strong protecting hand over Christianity as the basis of our entire morality and the family as the germ cell of the body of our Volk and state. It will reawaken in our Volk, beyond the borders of rank and class, its sense of national and political unity and its resultant duties. It will establish reverence for our great past and pride in our old traditions as the basis for the education of our German youth. It will declare a merciless war against spiritual, political and cultural nihilism. Germany must not and will not drown in anarchistic communism. So he goes after everyone there. He appeals to everyone. you You can see in his thinking, it sounds modern. All, all around, all around the West at the moment, you can hear people saying the same, feeling that you know that, that, that Christianity's been undone and that the whole moral basis of society is gone, and that there's an attack on the family, and there's an attack on the traditions, and there's an attack on history. People feel that now. People feel that now. You know, these are these are eternal sentiments that society ignores at its peril. Because people people feel this deep down. Good people feel this too. And it's very dangerous when any society denigrates family, the nation, history and traditions and culture and language and faith. And that is what happened in Germany in the the post-First World War period. And any time that happens, 
the people, the people are upset and, and respond accordingly. So all in, all in one goal, really, from the first time he opened his mouth as Chancellor, he was latching on to the, the notion of loss of pride for and by Germans for Germany. Economic misery, hard, you know, hardship. People couldn't pay the bills, couldn't heat their homes, couldn't feed their families. He, he remembered to blame the people that had signed the Treaty of Versailles. He blamed capitalism, just as a good communist would. As a nationalist socialist, he went after the capitalists as well, and he went after the communists. And also, also, he was aware, as were others, that the, the Jewish population of Germany had risen, many of them, maybe a disproportionate number you might say, had risen to positions of wealth and influence. They had been doing well during the Weimar years, and so he blamed them too, because he knew that apart from anything else, putting the, heaping the blame on, on an identifiable group, minority group, well, it always works. So Hitler did it too. He also, which is ultra-modern, he understood the power of the media, the press, and so he seized control of it. All means of public communication, all means of reaching out to the people, he got his hands on and kept control of it thereafter. In February 1933, there was a fire in the Reichstag, the parliament building, and he he blamed it on communists. You know, he, he hung that albatross around the neck of the communists to, to demonise them in the eyes of the wider German population. Quickly thereafter, he pushed for a, a general election, and he got it. And in the run-up to it, he empowered Goering, Hermann Goering, uh, to, to go in and smash up violently, brutally, any meetings of any opposition. You know, so people meeting in whatever beer cellars and wherever, Goering went in with the stormtroopers and broke them up, destroyed the opposition. That happens all the time here. You know, look at, look at around the world. I'm not even going to name, bother to name any names, but trying to get the opposition into jail is routine <laughs> for people that have, you know, have just decided to, to take the reins of power. That general election returned a Nazi majority, a, a, a majority for the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party. It was slim, but a majority is a majority. And it enabled him quickly, keeping that momentum going. He passed what was formally called the Law to Remedy the Distress of People and Reich. But it's gone down in history as the Enabling Acts. And by the Enabling Acts, Hitler assumed power, a new power, to pass law without having to go through the Reichstag or the president. You say, he, just, he just bypassed all of that. And you see that happening as well in the, in the present day. The parliament in Britain is, 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 is ignored. It's, it doesn't matter. You're not even consulted. Let's go to war. Let's bomb Yemen. Don't even bother to address parliament. That's happening. So there's nothing new under the sun. In 1934 he launched the Night of the Long Knives, whereby the party, his own party, was purged of anyone in it who wasn't absolutely on side with him. You know, within any political party, there's liable to be factions, and there's groups that maybe don't particularly like the leader, and so on and so on. Well, Hitler's way of dealing with that was just to kill them or throw them in jail. So, Night of the Long Knives. Hindenburg, the old man, died in August 1934. So, that head of state is gone and quickly forgotten. And Hitler 
from that moment was the absolute ruler of Germany. And so the world turned. In the summer of 1940, only the English Channel stood between Britain and the enemy. Hitler's plans for a seaborne invasion, Untermeyen Seelow, are afoot. But to be sure of success, the Royal Air Force must be swept from the skies. At the height of the months long battle, Winston Churchill witnesses firsthand a day like no other. With no reserves left, the Royal Air Force hold the line and turn back a tide of German bombers. And Churchill declares, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. I'd love to see you there. I've got a new website address. It's easy for these complicated times. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series merchandise, for t-shirts, for mugs, for hoodies and so on. My Instagram account is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. You can see the pattern here. And it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening. And write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book, it's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Mighty Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Arch and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Squared Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 